Hi folks, welcome to the Modern House podcast with me, Matt Gibbard. Today is the hottest day in human history here in the UK. It's 40 degrees and we're being told to stay at home and to keep our children out of school um, and not to travel because supposedly the railway lines are going to spontaneously combust. But I didn't go for my usual run through the countryside this morning because of the heat, which is probably an error because I'm frantically training for my first ever marathon in September. Um, So a group of us from the Modern House and Inigo are running um, at the New Forest Marathon on the 11th of September to raise some money for the cancer charity Maggie's. Now, Maggie's is a charity that's very close to my heart personally, um, partly because um, I've lost my own father to cancer a few years ago and other family members as well, but also because I think it's, you know, it's really all about the power of good design and architecture to add values to people's lives. So what they do is they use outstanding modern buildings designed by well-known architects to really uplift and inspire people at some very, very challenging times of their lives. It was founded by Maggie Keswick Jenks and her husband Charles Jenks, who was an architectural theorist uh, in the 1990s, after Maggie was herself diagnosed with terminal cancer. And her own experience of having cancer, she found incredibly unsettling and alarming, because when she was given the diagnosis um, by the doctor... Um, She was then unceremoniously bundled out into a sort of dark, dingy corridor with no windows to process the news. Um, And her treatment sort of went from there. And I think she she visualised a space within the grounds of the hospital, but not attached to it, where people could go to get proper advice on what kind of treatment they should be having, advice on exercises and more holistic treatments that they should be taking, to help them with their diagnosis Uh, and the idea of Maggie's centres was born. So the first one was built in Edinburgh in 1996 and there are now more than 20 of them all over the UK and actually in in other countries as well um, doing just really fantastic things I think. So um, if you are able to um, help with this cause it would of course be massively appreciated. Um, We've we've set up a page for it, it's justgiving.com slash fundraising slash the modern house so that's justgiving.com slash fundraising slash the modern house this leads me nicely on to today's guest because kevin carmody has himself designed one of the maggie centers the one up in merseyside uh, he is of course the co-founder of the brilliant architecture practice carmody Growark, which he founded with his friend andy Growark. And they are architects who I've followed closely for a number of years now. I think they are just really at the top of their game. We recorded the podcast at one of their newer projects called Two Pavilions in East Sussex. And we did the recording at the one in the grounds, which is now an artist studio. But it's been built from a fallen down 18th century farm building that they discovered when they were clearing the site. And they've utilised a lot of the old gnarly old bricks and they followed the original silhouette of the building, but they've inserted just some beautifully crisp in-situ concrete and a really lovely corten steel pitched roof, which forms an overhang where we recorded the podcast. So we're in this lovely sort of indoor-outdoor space underneath the overhang. It was just a, a really, really memorable experience for me. Kevin taught me a lot more about... Australian architecture. I'm a huge fan of Australian modernism anyway, 
but he, he, he really goes into a lot of detail about a couple of very important buildings that are very personal to him. But he also encouraged me to make a pilgrimage to what he describes as one of the most important houses in the world, uh, which is not far from Glasgow in Scotland. Um, so see if you can guess what that one is. But um, very, very inspiring. I really enjoy talking to him. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. So, Kevin, we've done a lot of these podcasts now, and we've definitely not done one in as architecturally engaging, beautiful, picturesque spot as this. We're in East Sussex. Uh, we're at a client project that you guys have done. It's called Modi Grow Arc. Uh, you're going to hear some noise in the background. We're quite close to the railway line. There's some builders going on in the background. They're, they're putting together a, a barn. Um, we're surrounded by just the most beautiful trees and greenery. But um, just tell us a little bit about this project. Why are we here? Because it's really, really good to be here. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's wonderful for me to be here because I haven't been here for several years because yeah. of COVID. And, and it's incredible how much the, the landscape has matured in that time. I think we were, we were really lucky to find both enlightened and very engaged clients in this site who already had a house, which is an unusual thing, I think, for an architect. Most people, if they have a house, don't need a second house. And, right. and, and, and when we came to talk to them, they were talking about the things that they sort of wanted to do as activities around their, their life. Their life was sort of working well in, in the house for their family, but it was the other things that they wanted to talk to us about um, working with them on. So whether that's the um, artist studio we're sitting in, which is proposed to be a space for making in, in various forms for, for not only the, the parents but the children, but also um, providing extra accommodation which allows um, guests to almost be here as a retreat from the family or indeed the family to retreat from the guests yeah. um, in that instance. So I think, I think for us that's, um, that's, that's sort of the setting. <laughs> it is Roger Daltrey. It's Roger Daltrey and his glider. <laughs> well, we should just say, yeah, the client was just telling us that Roger Daltrey was here the other day doing some welding on his roof and apparently flies around in his glider as well. So that's him going past, I think. Could be, could be. So, um, so I think, look, when we came to the site, one of the, the things that is really magical about this site... Um, is, is the landscape setting. Yeah. And, and I guess we looked around to try and find ways that would connect to the landscape in a slightly more visceral and direct way mm. than the existing house yes, yeah. which has its um, limitations as both a historic building but also yeah. in the necessities of, of everyday life. Yeah. So, yeah. The, yeah, so the original house is, is, is an oast house, isn't yeah. it, that's been extended you know very beautifully by um doug and morris a number of years ago and then you guys were tasked with you know adding the next layer right and you decided really interestingly i think to do that away from the house and and you've built these two quite separate pavilions yes why did you choose to do it like that i think partially i would say out of a respect to the architects who worked on the previous project yeah. who have done a really good job yeah. and, and secondly in trying to 
create something new and different in in the possibilities of the new pieces of architecture we were offering, as you say, as a as a new layer to the site. Um, we were f- fortunate in our walk around to find a, a ruin of an old, the original sort of cottage farmhouse that was on the site that burnt down many years before, and that was completely overgrown and actually not that easy to find in the in the in the context of the the undergrowth. So we we managed to find sort of three walls and, and, and pieces of fragments of that original house that were still standing and indeed the um, the original chimneys. Yeah. So we should say that there's, we're next to a big pile of logs where there's some, where there's some birds clearly nesting away. Um, so that's what you can hear in the background. Um, but the, the, this, this, uh, this studio that you've made, um, yeah. what, what are the materials you've used here? The first part of the project was, was a shoring up of, of those existing ruinous fragments of building to give us a kind of base to land something on yeah so they became the kind of foundation pieces so we have a kind of cast concrete tray if you will that 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 works almost like a a series you know continuous ground beam connecting those fragments of walls in space so that they don't fall down any further and secondly we've 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 taken the kind of crumbling tops of those ruinous walls and held them together and actually cast concrete into the edge of them mm. to hold them to give us a kind of um, meeting edge for a new structure. And, and that new structure is, I guess, a very simple monocoque roof, really mm. conceived of almost like a, a ship's hull, mm. um, welded in situ okay. on, on, on site. By Roger Daltrey. Um, by a number of <laughs> incredible craftspeople um, in the area. Uh, that that kind of monocoque um, roof creates not only the primary room, um, it, but also a series of, of hoods that extend that space into the landscape mm. either side. Mm. You know, it, it was very much intended to break down that barrier that perhaps we traditionally have in buildings between the inside and the outside. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, so your, your client showed us around the site before we started, and um, he said... I love this. He, he said there's deliberately no way of approaching this building that's kind of orchestrated in any way. So actually it does feel like it's in a just a sort of wild meadow. Uh, and you're not quite clear how you approach it. But actually I think that adds to the feeling that you've created here of a building that's always been here. And somehow you've done that. And I think what's really amazing about it is the materiality of it, but also the way that he and his family have, have used this this building because they've, they've 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 written on the walls you know there's a half drunk bottle of red wine in there you know there's logs on the fire it must be really really great for you actually to come back a few mm. years later and find that they're really really using it yeah um what i would love to do today is just find out a little bit more about your personal approach to mm. buildings and to life in general so i suppose mm. My next question for you really is, just tell us a bit about where you grew up and what your home environment was like. Um, well, I grew up in Canberra, in Australia. It was an incredible um, place in, in many ways. I mean, it, it, it's a modernist planned city. And in that sense, it's, it's quite extraordinary. There was an architectural competition to design Canberra. And mm. Melbourne and Sydney were having an argument over who would be the capital, and, mm. and ultimately they agreed somewhere between. So Walter Burley Griffin designed this, this idea for a garden city, and it's, it's, it really has um, grand 
triumphant boulevards like Washington or, or, or Paris even. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's scaled um, to, to a city which probably should be three or five million people. Um, and it just never grew into it. Right. So, so it's, it's, it's still a city of sort of 300,000 people. Oh, wow. So in, in that sense, it's, it's you know, really quite a small... City village. City, city town. <laughs> And, and it's, um, for me, you know, it, it had these kind of, you know, civic national buildings, you know, National Gallery with incredible collections and all of these kind of assets, but then perhaps not the, the life and energy of a, okay. of, a, of a bigger city. When I was growing up, I was often at the coast, actually, all right. I would say. So if we were a fly on the wall looking down at... 10-year-old Kevin, what would you have been doing apart from being at the sea? Like, Did you make stuff or what was your thing? Uh, I think probably um, quite connected to nature right. I mean, in, in lots of ways, um, whether that was um, uh, diving, um, snorkelling in the ocean, um, uh, catching your, your dinner or, or right. etc. Um, quite connected to Australia as a place, you know, doing trips out in to the desert okay. or um, camping, etc. Which, which I think that that particular climate and landscape really allows. Um, that makes a lot of sense, by the way, because <laughs> we've got wildlife all around us. Well, uh, yeah, and I was going to say as well, like you know, about twenty minutes ago, you came across a snake in the grass here, not metaphorically but physically, uh, which which you think was an adder, and uh, you know, no one else saw it. But you, yeah, you, you you were poised Ray Mears style to pick it up, which I thought was very brave of you. But that that makes a lot of sense now. Um, I was I was cautiously standing back. I think I think the, the snakes we have in Australia, you learn very early. Yeah, you just just keep an eye on them yeah we're not good yeah they're uh, they probably won't hurt you if yeah you keep right an eye on them. yeah um but yeah no i think i mean that that upbringing was was focusing me quite early on towards architecture i think the first time i did work experience at an architecture practice i think i was 12 oh wow okay what did, i mean what what kind of environment did you grow up in what was the family home like I'm not particularly from a, a wealthy family. We yeah. grew up in, in, in a relatively suburban context, I yeah. would say. <clears throat> what I would say is I spent a lot of early years making things with my father. Okay. Um, he was always building a pergola or a, or a deck or a structure or, or working within the house on something. And those were quite... Um, enjoyable times I, yeah. I think I, I find that kind of physical connection to making something quite rewarding yeah 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 does that feed into your process of designing now would you are you someone that would start by physically trying mm. to mold something I think our practice has always sort of approached theory through making okay. in a way. and yeah. Andy and I found real common ground in that when we first met at David Chipperfield. Those opportunities to discuss what something is and how the tectonics of architecture come together, I think is very true to that original idea of why you make something or how, how mm. you should make it yeah. to make uh, it, it resonate yeah. with people. Yeah. You mentioned growing up surrounded by nature. Do you think that that's a really important ingredient for any good designer in a way. Do you think that's the ultimate foundation? It's not the only way. I think it's been very important to my upbringing. Yeah. I would say Andy has a you know a different 
uh, upbringing and that, and okay. we come together with with different views on that. So I would say it works, but we've got two voices in that conversation of of how we think about designing together. Well, you, uh, being, I mean, I, I have a business partner myself, so I know what this is like, right? And it's um, it is a marriage of sorts. You know, you and Andy have been together creating this thing and building it for a number of years. How do you make that work between the two of you? Um, I was I was talking to someone the other night about this, and I was trying to kind of describe it. But when we very first started out, we had, um, you know, this mantra of how describing that process and working through, which is if you give two architects a pen each, yeah, they draw in different directions. Right. But if you give two architects one pen mm. and possibly two coffees or two glasses of wine... <laughs> Then, then they'll start to draw over each other's drawings to come into a point of reconciliation about what the values or the, the, the importance of um, each project might be. And I think for us, that's, that's worked well. Mm. I think that conversation, you know, it, it's very evident when you give architects pens that they tend to draw their own ideas first. And yeah. I think... Um, Sometimes there's relevance in another person drawing your idea or yeah. vice versa to move the idea forward and, yeah. and progress. Let us move on to your first choice of living space. I very much approve of. <laughs> um, it's the Marie Short House in New South Wales, Australia, designed in the 1970s by Glenn Murcutt and then extended by him in 1980 for his own use because he bought it. Just talk us through, I mean, have you been there? Yes. It's an unusual story because I was in second year at university and I decided to take the summer holidays to do a surfing trip going up the East Coast with two other architects because we were going to a place called Crescent Head, which has an incredible point break that just sort of wraps around and we were, we were going to camp in the, on the headland. And and it's really just in the foothills behind Kempsey, the, the site, which is... Um, I think Tungati people's land and it's of it's four hours north of Sydney mm-hmm. and it has this kind of subtropical elements within the kind of deeper valleys mm-hmm. and then this rich, very beautiful, quite lush landscape. I have to caveat this in saying I wasn't invited to go and see this house. So <laughs> You're I'm, not the first person to say this on this podcast. So okay. So, <laughs> so as part of part of our little uh, architectural road trip we were finding where things were and we uh, there was no one there and we we had a little walk around the outside of the house and what's particular and I of this project is is I think it was the first time that Glenn Merkett was thinking about the directness of connection between the environment and I mean very physical things of the environment like where predominant winds come from how how you could moderate the extremes of climate with the design of the house, mm. I think. And secondly, it has this it has this kind of um, rather radical at the time split of, of functions that I guess for the first time challenged about why are we building houses like European houses when we live in a climate that is really quite different mm. and and so what seemed really interesting to me was was this this separation of the idea that 
the living areas of the house are completely disconnected. You have to walk outside to go to the bedroom. That's mad, isn't it? It it is it is rather mad, and I think I think to convince a client to yeah. to do that um, at this point in history, I think was was rather radical. I mean, the reason I was doing this trip up the east coast of Australia was that Glenn Merkin had just come to our university and given a lecture, mm. and was so completely in inspiring in his single-mindedness. He'd come to this lecture and we'd all expected him to talk about his houses. And he was doing a competition for a building in Sydney at the time. And all he did is talk about the competition process, which was incredibly revealing of how engaged he was in the process of design and how single-minded, you know, absolutely focused he was on design. Um, but he didn't talk about any of his other work, which so so we thought it we probably should go and have a look at <laughs> some of the work following that. And I and I really think um, that was a real um, touch point, I would say, in in firstly hearing him speak and seeing how how passionate you need to be about a, about the design process to kind of to drill to that level of, of detail. I think this, the 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 last thing about well, there's many things about this house, but it it sort of blurs that boundary. And it was one of the first houses, I suspect, in, in, in Australia that treated that edge where we have these verandas, but in, in the traditional um, colonial-style houses of Australia, which, which wrap, and they sort of do an incredible environmental job, but they still distinguish quite firmly where the edge of the territory of, of kind of living is and where the garden is. Yeah. And this house breaks all of those sort of barriers. Yeah. It, it really extends into the landscape. I was very much looking from the outside in, and it has this tough, you know, Corrugated, quite industrial. Let's face it, agricultural aesthetic to it. Well, I was going to say it's based on the wool barns. I think of the is. area. Just externally, what do you think? Because there's two pavilions. What do you think elevates it above the vernacular? What is it about it? In this in this instance, I think um, uh, the the use of a relatively mundane material, mm. elevated by the absolute precision of kind of setting it out. Yeah. Really interestingly, the client in this project, you know, ha- had an idea that um, I think Glenn Merkel had convinced them to put the house here, but they weren't convinced that it should always be there. Yeah. And so he was asked to almost design it so that it could be moved in the future. Yeah, so amazing. all of that idea about touching the earth lightly and and perhaps the, the elevated um, uh, stature of it in the landscape floating across the relative landscape and then and then the lightness of all of the elements both external and, and all of the timber carpentry work um, all of the interior is wood so you have this kind of almost marquetry quality of putting together these woods in a in a very very set piece way but also put in a way that with a vision that you could take them apart yeah in the future amazing i guess history plays out in lots of ways this probably is the kind of seminal project that kind of set up his thinking for the future if you go to Mm. the bingy house or any of the other famous uh houses that they disconnect parts of the house whether that's living and bedrooms or guests and 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 force you to come outside yeah and so they have this sense that whilst you're in the house 
there is a connection rather like where we are here is yeah. where you're where you're forced to see what it, what kind of day it is what the temperature's doing what the air's doing mm. what the what the movement's like what the what the noises are what, what all of those qualities are and i think that's really a special thing isn't it that that he kind of focused on i think if if i play back that you know that kind of bush aesthetic that kind of australian identity that was appropriated to his work i don't think that 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 was ever envisaged in these early projects right. i think there was a directness of using both a um an industrial rigor of how we build sheds how we build agricultural yeah. buildings in that place with a richness of interiors made out of these beautiful woods that that came together to create something unique here and mm. i think it was it was rather appropriated rather than envisaged okay. as, as okay. that kind of identity and and not everyone lives in the bush and not everyone lives in this you know sublime sites that glen mercat was working on in yeah. his early houses so i think they were very specific to place they were very very specific to climate and i think in that sense they were they were well ahead of their time they were very passive environmentally they were very um i think humane i found on youtube a a, a conversation that he had with richard laplastrio and i thought this was really interesting because glenn Murcutt said um, at that breaking period in one's career one has a mind that's enormously flexible. It hasn't had success in any way. I think that success is a disaster. It can destroy an architect. Mm. What, do you, what do you think he meant by that? Well, I think he was, he was elevated through some of those early projects to be the kind of champion of the new sort of Australian identity yeah. for architecture. Yeah. And, and and I think that's probably what he's reacting to there. Yeah. I, d- I don't think that was what his interest was. And and let's face it, n- with with a continent that size, nor should it should mm. there be a singular identity that mm. captures a national identity. Mm. You know, yeah. I just don't I just don't think it, he was imagining it to to suddenly be elevated, which I'm sure was offered him a lot of opportunity to build more, but also completely a, a constraint about you know what you do next yeah but he basically kept the world at arm's length really didn't he because he's I mean he's got to be Australia's most famous living architect mm. but he's essentially a one man band isn't he I think I think he only ever works with one or two people yeah yeah and that's amazing isn't it I mean no doubt you have an amazing team and you get a huge amount from them and, and vice versa but is there a part of you is there a part of every architect that thinks Oh, do you know what that kind of that thing of just doing doing that you know nice nice bit of drawing one client do you think it's sometimes you think I'd like to go back to that yeah look residential architecture has probably always been the kind of hotbed of architectural endeavor yeah, it? yeah. It's, it's 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 where some of the more radical leaps mm. in how we think about life how we live um yeah. And, and what architecture is, I think, have happened in that mm. territory. And obviously you're very familiar with that in, in what you do. But I, I, so I, so I think there is in every architect a kind of desire to do, do some houses. And one can always relate back to a house, can't they? And I yeah. think that's 
a nice thing, isn't it? It's a conver- it's a conversation in shared ground with yeah. everybody you meet. And yeah, yeah. So I think for that for that reason, I think houses are always important to architects. Yeah, I think that's right. I've got you know quite a lot of friends who are architects. Some of them have quite big practices, and um, sometimes they'll come to me and they'll say something like, you know, how do I drum up a bit more PR about what we're doing and and I think the first question will always be, well, have you done a house recently? Because <laughs> you're right, a house, a home speaks to us emotionally so much more mm. you know, than, than some of the bigger projects that you guys get to do. So I, I think it's, yeah, what I like about your practice is there's always been those touch points all the way through, I think, those little residential projects that you've done. Um, let's move on to your second one, which is a house in Melbourne called Heidi 2 I think it's called mm. yeah mm. Uh, which was built for John and Sunday Reed by David McClashan of McClashan and Everest in the 1960s mm. so it's now a part of the Heidi Museum of Modern Art right um, tell us about the background to this one because I think the Reeds first arrived back in the 1930s if mm-hmm. I've got that right that's right what's the backstory there well first of all this project was really important to me because I'd moved to Melbourne to study at RMIT and right. and uh, if I'm honest, I, I wasn't um, completely at ease with with how architecture was being discussed or thought about and within RMIT. And I would always try and find projects or buildings within the city that would reconnect me to, I guess, m- my own values a bit more strongly. And this was one of them. Mm-hmm. So John and Sunday set up, they, they bought a colonial house within what was extensively a dairy farm again. Uh, it was the Wurundjeri people's land prior to that. And it is really interesting as a, that the indigenous peoples always thought this was quite um, a special place. Mm. And there are a number of important landmarks within their culture on this land. Yeah, um, including a, a really beautiful scar tree, and scar trees are, are trees that have normally been hit by lightning at some point in their life, and so they're they're very easy to mark, and they would always be a place where people gather mm. and come together. Mm. So I think there's this kind of history of that that they knew about of of kind of bringing bringing people together, and and from this kind of colonial house that sits at the top of the hill, they started to invite the kind of most interesting artists and writers of the period to come and stay with them. And there were some really interesting artists they brought out to the site, um, including Sidney Nolan. Um, who, who painted his Ned Kelly paintings there, right? He did, um, amongst that. others, which, yeah. are, which are all in the National Gallery in Canberra. So yeah. we yeah. have a nice joining up. Yeah. Um, so so they, they sort of set up this, let's face it, almost a kind of art commune. Mm. It draws from the landscape. They they planted extensively, uh, worked with the artists on the land. Mm. They did a range of making things. You know, not dissimilar to the setting we're in. You know, they had spaces for artists to work. And at that point, there's a slight departure because um, one of these famous artists managed to fall in love with Sunday. Okay. <laughs> so so Sydney and. Sunday Reed ended up having a an affair um, and were completely in love mm. by all accounts and in the end Sydney left and I think left Australia and never came back okay 
and out of the kind of the ruins of what was created there um, these wonderful philanthropic clients mm. then commissioned a new house yeah and they commissioned this new house that set further down the hill closer to the river as as a kind of beginning again process together and the really interesting part of that and, and we've spoken to the architects in Melbourne because for a number of reasons we've met them through the process but they they you know the original brief was I didn't really they didn't really want a house they wanted a ruin right. in the landscape I lo- love that yeah so so how do you make a house not look like a house mm. and so what's incredible about this plan is that it that it extends as a series of rooms some of them are inside some of them are outside yeah as courtyards some of them are enclosed completely some of them are partially open Mm. extending into the landscape so from every direction you look at the house from the landscape you never see a window but you know this house has so many unusual qualities Mm. i mean it actually in scale it's it's really humane it brings quite small rooms around functions that make sense for the scale of those functions everything's been put together in a a very very thoughtful way they designed the furniture that is on the tables even in one of the sitting areas there's this incredible uh, lounge yeah and the lounge is designed into almost like a den seating with a recessed floor and all of the upholstery of the lounge um, becomes the rug and becomes the carpet. Okay. And it's all been made out of this incredible wool, that, this black Tasmanian sheep wool that was done by an indigenous community towards the Victorian um, border. And, and they, they weaved it almost as a, a, a clean-shorn piece of wool that is mm. then cross-threaded through... So you have all the burrs and all the, 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 the original textures of the wool in there. Yeah. It's not been cleaned and bleached and, oh, and wow. brushed. It's got, all, it's got all of those in there. So I think there's really particular and special things about it that are, that are unique to that place. Yeah, yeah. For its time, it was, it was really quite forward thinking as a, as a building and I think is not that well known internationally as yeah, well yeah I've not come across it I confess yeah, yeah. No, so I've really enjoyed looking at the pictures and trying to figure it all out And but the limestone is expressed internally as well isn't it it is it is so well, it's a sort of pristine well, version of what's outside cold, cold bridging doesn't really um, happen <laughs> it's, not a, thing. it's yeah. not a thing and that's how Glenn Merkett has managed to to make um, many of um his projects because because actually the one can extend structural elements inside to outside with with a relative impunity because of the actually the ventilation needed to keep the house cool or mm. or ventilated generally works through through most of Australia now what i would say is a view on probably carbon and energy is probably means we want one wouldn't build that way anymore For but sure. in the market house we've discussed already and in this i think you get this kind of directness of material um a wall is a wall and that is both the outside and the inside expression in in limestone and it, it is really quite wonderful quality 
You've just given me a little um, book here with some pictures of black and white photographs of it. There's this brilliant desk, isn't there, that runs mm. from one wall all the way to the other, just yeah. built in in front of a window. Sure. There is a famous letter that the John Reed wrote there to the architect about how it's completely repaired um, not only his 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 life but his way of thinking and he can he can think clearly again and now write again in the in this new place okay the one thing i would say is i think it's an incredibly sensitive project to the landscape it really sets on the edge of the floodplain mm. as you get a drop down to what is what is the floodplain of the yarra river and and so you enter at the upper level and you drop down into the primary living living levels and it has that quality of I've experienced in perhaps some of Frank Lloyd Wright's work where you get this compressive feeling of ceiling height you know very yeah. low yeah. ceiling through the entranceway where you then opens up into much larger spaces that then take in view of courtyard but then release into a view of landscape at certain moments well i mean thinking about here this you know we're sitting just outside one of the pavilions at the moment but the other pavilion which you also took us into absolutely is is the is the epitome of that because you it's 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 attached to the main house and you walk through what feels like an umbilical cord or something. So it's like a tunnel and it's deliberately dark and it deliberately slopes upwards, right? So the client was telling us, I'm sure you'll back this up, that the idea is, is that it, it puts you slightly on edge. It makes you feel a bit anxious because as human beings, we, we find tunnels, yeah, slightly intimidating. And you walk down this very long tunnel and then as you turn the corner, you arrive in this room, which is a, a really beautifully conceived bedroom which floats over a, a pond and that feeling of when you turn the corner and you see the water and you see the sky and you see the landscape is so much more uh yeah turned up to 11 by having been through that prior experience mm. and that I, I think i think that can be applied to homes at so many different scales as well and i i, I always think you know if you have a studio flat even having a single step within that space is thought-provoking, isn't it? Even yes. having like a a curtain that you pull across that you sleep behind, it just gives you that change of scale and a change of acoustics, mm. and it, it plays with your emotions, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that extension we've done for the guest suite, it it sort of started work thinking about where would be the nicest place to sleep. Yeah. You know, and work back from there. I, yeah. think, I think the the experience that you described earlier is about heightening that differentiation, that removal from the house, and, mm. and absolutely, there's there's nuances in how people feel about that, and I think they're very mm. very personal feelings. Richard described the kind of um, you know the, the rawness of it. We haven't lined the tunnel. It's, no. it's 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 absolutely direct in its expression of what it is. Um, but all of that sort of was, I guess, subsequent to the idea of of putting the bed right on the edge of the lake so that you wake up with this kind of view across the lake and looking out, you know, having a very, very direct to to nature there. Yeah. And And allowing that certain distance from the house, you know, one of the 
clients concerns was that that sense of having a guest in the house giving them enough sense of retreat but also the family enough sense of retreat to do its own things from from guests and i think that's a that's a gosh that's a very rare privilege that you could get in a in a landscape like this so yeah. we thought we'd try and amplify that mm. and and make something very special of that journey from the house mm. and and so it becomes a real journey it's mm. it's, it's it's an immersive experience mm. we've been very lucky in the practices trajectory that we've managed to work with artists like Anthony Gormley where we work, collaborated on a project like Blind Light um, which was a completely immersive experience of almost walking into a cloud and and you know that, that experience is, is difficult to describe to someone because you're walking into a room which is filled with with water droplets that have been vaporized and suspended in air at the right temperature and humidity and it's six times as bright as daylight on on the ground right and when you walk in your eyes are open but you can't see and actually everyone has a different reaction but a lot of people have said it was it was sort of feeling like you couldn't your brain's telling your feet to move but they won't because Mm. you can't see where you're going to walk Mm. and so you lose your coordinates of space and you know Anthony's work is very much about the body in space and I think having worked at the periphery of architecture on projects like that we're very very attuned to those subtle spatial moves that think about the body in space and how it might make people feel and how therefore you can heighten each person's connection to place or its purpose. Well, let's move on to your third choice, which is another house that you've got personal connection with through your work, but we'll come to that. But first of all, um, it says it's the Hill House in Helensborough, near Glasgow, which was built by Charles Rennie Mackintosh in 1902 for the publisher Walter Blackie. Um, It's now in the hands of national trust scotland and you've yeah done some some of your own innovative work there but um just talk me through the house itself i mean it's um it's sort of reminiscent of a kind of scottish castle from the outside isn't it i think um this is one of the most important modern houses in in the uk and i think and and indeed europe and if not the world It, it really is a special house for 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 its beginning, I would say, yes, it has these kind of baronial forms. Mm. But really, this house was looking a long way forward at this point in history from what was being done yeah. um, in, in, in Europe, across everywhere. Charles Rennie Mackintosh had just done a kind of grand tour of Europe. And he came back to Glasgow with a kind of view of trying to bring some of the... I guess unusual forms he'd seen, particularly the kind of neoplastic forms of Southern Europe, back to to um, projects in Glasgow. And when he was commissioned on this project, he went to live with the clients for six months. Did he really? And he lived with them, <laughs> and to see how they lived, to see what they did, to see how the the site worked, to see what, and so. He spent a lot of time thinking about that. And 
and you know there's some very particular things about this house that are responsive to climate mm. in you know very rarely would you get the front entrance way in the gable <laughs> yeah. of, a, of a house then at this point in history compositionally we were still putting entrances in the front so so even from and that was just to move the entrance way away from the predominant breeze yeah you know and where, where the strong winds are coming from so he had this kind of sensitivity to site that was really n not very common so what we have here is a complete piece of work this is a piece of architecture where he's designed everything all of the interiors the wallpapers the textiles the furniture and even the cutlery yeah so he he invested in everything and this and is and this is before the Bauhaus came along by the way way before um to put it in context you know the 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 house is several years before Adolf Loos was even talking about kind of his kind of new direction in kind of modernism and these kind of stripped back austere undecorated exteriors mm. so first of all the exterior is he's brought back cement render yeah. from southern Europe and he's applied that into a very exposed Scottish site in Helensborough so we're facing the Clyde we're right there you know you're getting incredible weather and when you look at the detail of this project there's no sills there's no parapet copings there's there's really no it, it's literally buttered cement render up and over uh, but and by the way i i sorry to dig out this stat but I, I was amazed by this it rains for 190 days a year in helensborough which means that the house has endured more than 22,000 days of rain since it was built. There you go. I think that's a very good stat. I think that's slightly less than our project in Windermere, where I think it rains 200 days a year, which is, which is the weather in the UK. For, so, for an Australian, this is, a, this is an interesting test. It's an interesting test. The, um, so, look... Think, I think there's lots of things about that because I think you, you said it. it's sort of a little bit baronial. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I think with with removing all of that yeah. detail, suddenly it, it looks completely other yeah. as, a, as an amalgam of forms um, buttered together almost in this cement render. So its expression is, is, is um, very compositional mm -hmm. um, in its arrangement. And, and I think... The placement of the chimneys, the placement of the turreted forms, uh, which are more baronial in their in their origins, but also the kind of plainness of that facade, mm. I think, was just completely radical for yeah, its time. Yeah. The second thing that I would say is that you have then these incredibly rich interiors, mm. incredibly, and you've got to remember at this time, Glasgow was one of your major shipping point, mm. ports and had um, exchanges with many countries, including Japan. Mm. And there was, with those cultural exchanges, were craftspeople and materials. Mm. And, mm. You, and you see a lot of that exchange in the ground floor entranceway and, and I would say more masculine spaces. Mm. And at that time, that point in history, we're still designing a house where... Perhaps men use some rooms more and women used other rooms more, mm. which would be very questionable today. But mm. it's it's reflective of, I guess, this this 
specificity he brought to understanding his client mm. and what they liked mm. and how they wanted to feel and so so you have these these heavy broody wood-lined uh study and dining room and and drawing room which related to the rooms that Walter Blackie would use and and then more ethereal white and decorative I would say um spaces and yes it's sort of masculine and feminine isn't it yeah yeah the second overlay on those contrast of, of ideas about materiality is that this is a really complex spatial plan. It, it, it has those subtle changes of levels. It has intermediate steps. It has little pockets for, for waiting on the edge of the stair, a statutory or, you know, a kind of intermediate zones, which, which are reminiscent of, of what was being done in, in Vienna. Mm. 20 years after mm. and and I think what really is charming about that when you're there is that they're, they're so fluid and they're so complex spatially actually between material and, and form mm. and this is all on the interior of a building which is so stripped back and, mm. and relatively mm. austere yeah I feel a bit sorry for Macintosh in a way because you can't sort of go to a museum shop without coming across a kind of knockoff you know, mug or clock or something, right? Uh, can you see their little? Can you see their little beats coming out there? Bless them! <laughs> wow! What do you think they are, blackbirds? Little baby birds here. No, they're, they're little finches or something. Oh, look at they? that! I think they might be blue tits, maybe. Blue tits. Yeah, there we go. Look at that! Isn't that incredible? That's so sweet. Beautiful, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, the, everywhere you go, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a knockoff yeah. Macintosh mug or something. So, I, I confess, I haven't seen the real thing. No. So, I think my judgment is a bit clouded. But there's some of the original furniture in there as well, right? What what's it like? Almost, almost all of it. Yeah. Well, well, I have to confess, where you know, we've been working on a project there for a couple of years. Um, yes. Yeah. Now completed and really you've hit the nail on the head you know what not that many people go to visit hill house yeah and yet it's charles rennie mcintosh's most important project yeah now the the Mac school of art burnt down for the second time yeah so the challenge for the national trusts of scotland when we got involved in the project was how to bring people to come and look at this. So, confronted with a conservation project on this building, mostly because of that that buttered cement render, which over many, many thousands of days of rain has has failed and is now turned the entire house into a dissolving aspirin. (laughs) Um, uh, It's literally turned the walls into almost sponges and what we've got is all of those beautiful wallpapers and timber work on the interior was wasn't being damaged mm. and when we first turned up to the project many of the rooms had buckets on the floors mm. catching water from leaks above so at that stage what we realized is that there is a, a real urgency actually to first of all to stop it getting worse mm. 
And the normal solution for projects like that in conservation terms is to put um, scaffolding yeah. over the building and perhaps do a little visitor centre down on the lawn. Um, <laughs> and in fact, that was the original brief okay. when we entered the competition. But we thought we'd, we'd done a few projects in scaffolding before, um, certainly yeah. of a temporary nature. And, and they're difficult for, for the public to visit. So what we thought was, was rather than um, do scaffolding, why don't we make a temporary museum mm. over the house? Mm. And that works like a drying shed, and it allows the building to dry out. And the conservation works can be done from small lift and movable aluminium platforms inside. Okay. And that will then allow visitors to come and still see the house whilst it's in conservation. So what's and the externally? And internal. Are you kind of going to inside as well? And internal. Right. So they'll do rooms by rooms. Okay. There might be some rooms closed when the conservation's happening. And the, the really nice thing is for us is that that's sort of making our architectural heritage relevant. Yeah. It's bringing more people to come and see how things are made. Mm. And that's mm. sort of back to the original, you know, tenet of why I got into this. I think mm. that's that's really important that, that mm. people realise things are heavy, things are difficult, they're hard to put together and, and the assemblage of a piece of architecture takes takes a huge amount of effort. Mm. And so for us there's a real um, strength in that. We've done this temporary structure which works as a temporary museum almost turning the, the hill house into a doll's house inside this structure. It has a solid roof and it's covered in chainmail mesh, but it has walkways that allow you to walk up and completely over the house, Amazing. completely around it. What's it like looking down on it then? It's really extraordinary. And yeah. in fact, there's skylights and windows that certainly the conservation team didn't know were there. Oh, wow. Relating to lights that used to go into children's bedrooms and things that have been blocked up over the years okay so really interesting details we're learning about but you can see all of the failings you can see all <laughs> the the problems with that water getting behind the cement render and you getting it freezing and then cracking the render and then you're getting that then penetrating into the mortar and the brick and the stone beyond yeah so you can see all of the bones of it yeah now and and you know What's really extraordinary is people seem to enjoy seeing that because we've now got three times as many people visiting mm. the Hill House than before we did the conservation oh, project. Wow. So, so it's, just, it's raised awareness of the whole thing. I think it's yeah. not only raised awareness, I think it's, it's also a kind of memorable experience yeah, of yeah. going there to, yeah. to see it. And I think it's also an experience people might go back to several times yeah. because you'll see the progress of the conservation. Yeah. So I think in that sense, it's making it relevant. Yeah. It's making it something that's on people's agenda. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's good for architecture because otherwise... You know, who will go and see these houses? I mean, it's a, it's a house that, that clearly, as you say, it's one of the most important in the country and people need to go and see it. I confess it, it wasn't on my pilgrimage list, but I think it should be. It, I think it should be on everyone's, actually. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is such a special house. Yeah. And you should spend some time there. It really, 
allows you to slow down and look at how it works with the landscape and everything around. And I think, look, our project supports the, the possibility of conservation. It stops time for yeah. this particular building in its aging process so we can consider what's best to do next. And, mm. you know, we're, we're just in the drying out process at the moment. Okay. The conservation is still yet to happen. So you've taken the aspirin out of the water... Yeah. They've got to build it back up again. I think I think there's a yeah. careful, careful putting together yeah. of those things. I think there's also a really difficult question in that, which is, should we, from the conservation point of view, put back the same cement render right. that caused the problem, which would be authentic and true to its original okay. design, or shall we do something else, something modern, with yeah. perhaps a more plastic material that could deal with that difficult climate? Um, but that not be authentic to its original vision. So I think. So what's the plan? I think that's that's a debate still okay. happening, and isn't that a really good conversation that, yeah. that the National Trust of Scotland can allow now to happen? Yeah. Because it's not getting worse. Yeah. Well, but what's your view on on sort of reinstating these old buildings? I mean, like take Notre Dame or something. Mm. You know, do you think that they should just be precisely recreated, or do you think actually? They deserve another layer of history somehow. I think the Mac is the perfect. Yeah. Um, the so Macintosh School of Art. Yes. Yeah. So Charles Rennie Macintosh's masterpiece, yeah. I would say, um, which yeah. which has now burnt down twice. Yeah. In that instance, I believe that it certainly should be rebuilt authentically. Okay. I think the reality is that even though we have extensive documentation from the first restoration and the second one of what was there and exactly how it was put together. The reality is all those years of patina and use and misuse and and the eccentricities of how things are sometimes constructed yeah. um, and made physically, um, I think it will always be a slight interpretation that brings it into its own particular time. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that reading uh, of history will always be there. I'm afraid, and I think I think so. Okay. So one should try and create it as authentically as possible. But but um, what but what and why why should we? What are we going to kind of gain by doing that? I think in that instance, that building, rather like the Hill House, is 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 so unique in its original vision and experience that mm. that is that is its sole purpose for being so sort of educational to, aspect yeah, of it yeah yeah to allow the the art students the architect students who mm. also used to use some of that building um to immerse themselves within a particular atmosphere and environment that was envisaged okay. by by let's face it a, an incredible architect who didn't build very much mm. for that reason i think it should built mm. again fairly authentic yeah, yeah okay I think we should leave it there Kevin I think we should let these little blue tit chicks have some food that are nesting away in that pile of logs there I think we'd probably probably upset their meal time but um, I mean th- just thank huge thank you for bringing us to this place it's absolutely extraordinary place to do a podcast um not without its acoustic challenges, but I think hopefully it'll work. <laughs> hopefully you've got enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's been really enjoyable. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening, as always. I thought it was really interesting to hear Kevin's perspective on the Glasgow School of Art. 
partly because it was a little bit different to the view of Penny Martin that um, we had on the previous episode of the podcast. So do have a listen to Penny if you get the chance. She's editor-in-chief of The Gentlewoman, and she had some really interesting, funny, engaging and insightful things to say. Uh, One of my favourite episodes, so do check that out if you haven't done already. If you're looking for some respite from the heat, maybe, check out our website, themodernhouse.com, where there's a roundup of the best places in London to get ice cream. And there's also a new film about a very special modernist house in Hampstead. My guest next time is the fashion designer Christopher Kane. He's an absolutely brilliant guest, really shoots from the hip and made me laugh a lot. Do have a listen to that one. I think it's a really, really good one. This episode, as always, was produced by Kate Taylor of Feast Collective and was mixed by Andy Taylor. I'm off for an ice cream and so I will see you next time.